Brian, thank you, and welcome everybody to Power Lunch. Along with Morgan Brennan, I'm Tyler Matheson, and here's what's ahead. China's COVID chaos, protests mount against the country's virus restrictions, the effects rippling through global markets on this Monday. We will look at the impact on stocks, commodities, tech, and American companies operating in that country. Plus, inflation looms over holiday spending. We'll talk to a former industry insider who says it may be time to bet against against the consumer, Morgan. Well, Tyler, stocks are at session lows right now. Those protests in China injecting fresh volatility into the market with the Dow down about 1.3% right now, 437 points. The S&P also down about 1.4%, 39.70, falling back below that 4,000 mark. And the NASDAQ also down 1.3% right now. It's a volatile day for crude. Energy stocks are actually some of the worst performers in the S&P as well. But in terms of crude, it is lower uh, from earlier on, on the session, uh, the unrest in China. It has turned higher midday, though, after the Eurasia Group said that OPEC Plus will seriously consider a new production cut. So you can see we've jumped up 1% to 77 and change for WTI crude. Finally, Treasury yields also recovering from earlier lows. The 10-year yield is now trading around 3.7%, as you can see right there. Tyler? Well, Morgan, we begin with the rare show of dissent happening this day and over the weekend across China. Those protests leading concerns about the economic outlook for the world's second largest economy. Key commodity prices are moving, everything from oil to copper, on questions about future demand. As well, the tech industry, and Apple in particular, uh, with big production facilities in that country, that they could be hit especially hard. Now, we've got a team of reporters on the story, beginning with Yunus Yun in Beijing, Pippa Stevens on the commodity ripple, and Steve Kovac will take a look at the Apple impact. Eunice, let's start with you and the latest development over what has been an extraordinary weekend. Absolutely, Tyler. Uh, Shanghai residents have been complaining tonight that police at transport hubs have been checking their phones, asking to see if they have VPNs or foreign apps like Instagram, Twitter, or Telegram, the encryption service a Twitter a, a, a telegram is often used by protesters as well as activists to communicate. Now, this is all coming after weekend protests had erupted in multiple cities, including here in Beijing, triggered by a deadly building fire in the far western city of Urumqi, which many people suspect could have been worsened because of COVID controls. Now, much of the public anger is being directed at the zero COVID policy. However, there are some indications that there's a wider dissatisfaction uh, with the uh, freedoms here. In fact, um, in Beijing, there were several people who are holding up blank sheets of white paper to uh, protest censorship in Shanghai. There are even some people who are calling for the resignation of President Xi Jinping. Now, P Beijing has uh, continuously signaled at this point that is going to stick with the zero COVID policy and uh, mitigate some of the more excessive curbs. Uh, but the big question is whether or not this a slightly relaxed policy would be able to contain the virus. Ty? All right, thank you very much, Eunice Yoon. Working late into the night for us. Uh, Pippa, we're gonna turn to you now. She's got a look at China's importance uh, to the commodity market, Pippa. 
Hey, Morgan, while fears around a slowdown in Chinese demand sent oil tumbling earlier today, WTI briefly went negative for the year, touching its lowest level since last December, with Brent sinking to its lowest since January. Now, China is key to the global oil market since it's the world's largest importer. This year, it's on track to import about 9.3 million barrels per day of seaborne crude, according to data from Kepler. That is down from more than 10 million barrels per day in recent years years. Now on China's demand side, JP Morgan said it's pacing to contract for the first time on record. The IEA forecasts total demand at just under 15 million barrels per day this year. That's still about 15 percent of worldwide demand, but it is down from last year's levels. Now oil did reverse those big losses right around noon with traders pointing to a possible output cut from OPEC. Tyler. Thank you very much, Pippa. Let's get to Steve Kovac now and the potential impact uh, on Apple and, of course, those uh, newest iPhones. Steve. Yeah, Tyler. So, look, the fact- factory of uh, Foxconn in China, that lockdown and protest last week could mean even fewer iPhones on shelves this holiday than even Apple warned about earlier this month. So what's moving shares down about 2% or over 2% today is Bloomberg reporting, citing a single source, by the way, that Apple will ship 6 million fewer iPhones this quarter than originally expected due to those protests we saw interrupt production last week. That's double the 3 million shortfall expected just a few weeks ago when Apple initially warned about it. Meanwhile, J.P. Morgan analysts this morning tracking shipping times for the iPhone 14 Pro. They say it will take 33 days to, uh, to deliver it here in the U.S., which is a bit better than the 40-day wait from a week ago. But it likely doesn't reflect the impact we've seen from these protests. It's going to take another couple of weeks for that to make its way into the supply chain. Now, Apple declined to comment on these latest reports. The last we heard from Apple was on Thanksgiving evening that evening or Thanksgiving Eve, rather, that evening. Apple had people on the ground monitoring the situation at Foxconn. We have no updates from Apple or Foxconn since. So what this means, most people are not going to be able to get an iPhone 14 Pro in time for Christmas. Apple could also miss targets for iPhone sales growth this quarter. And a lot of demand could pull forward into January. Not to mention, this exposes the risk of Apple relying on China, including the human cost of making products there, guys. Yeah, Steve, that's kind of where I, where I want to home in, this, this human cost. Um, it's Obviously, it's awful from a human standpoint, but in the case of Apple specifically, um, such a major company on the world stage and certainly one that uh, is very focused on things like ESG here at home, I- I've got to think that this is, uh, from a PR standpoint, a very difficult situation for this company to navigate, and I wonder what it, what it means for the company from that standpoint and also in terms of its ability to now move more and more of that production to other places. Yeah, Morgan, there's a lot of uh, aspects to this, a lot lot going on here. So, look, this is probably the worst look for the Apple labor throughout the supply chain in China since about 2011 when those reports came out. We know we heard these awful tales of Foxconn workers committing suicides and stuff you might remember. Since then, Apple has put in a lot of uh, safeguards in place. You know, they audit their supply chain. They make sure everyone, you know, no underage laborers or anything like that uh, being put out through their supply chain. And, And they've been, you know, credited for doing a good job with that. But then when something like this out of their control happens, when the Chinese government decides to send in security forces into a Foxconn plant to keep uh, workers basically locked in, yeah, it becomes a bad look for Apple as well, which has made this commitment to make sure these kind of uh, human rights abuses do not happen within their supply chain. So I'm curious to hear from Apple 
uh, what, they, what they're doing and what they've learned over the last week or so there on the ground about how they're going to mitigate these effects. But to your point, Morgan, you know, they are trying to expand their supply chain and become less reliant on China. We've heard these reports that India is rap- ramping up in a more significant way to make iPhones. But look, they really, China is really the only place where most of the iPhones are made and where they have the labor uh, force in order to do it. They, for example, when that first lockdown happened at that Foxconn facility, Morgan, they, they had to hire 100,000 more workers just on, and turn on a dime and get those people in. They can't do that in many other countries. Uh, Eunice, let me ask you, what are you seeing or hearing about how the authorities are addressing the protests, cracking down? Uh, would be the verb to use, I suppose. Yeah, well, in Beijing, as well as in Shanghai, uh, we are hearing more about a heavier uh, police presence, especially around the areas where there were protests. So these are police who are uniformed, as well as those who are uh, plainclothes. And so uh, anybody who goes to those locations is usually asked several questions. Um, As I mentioned before, um, there have been um, several people in uh, those areas that are being asked specifically um, to show their phones and to see the, the um, you know, whether or not they have these different uh, foreign apps. That's a development that we hadn't seen in the past. And a lot of that is because uh, Chinese use these VPNs to try to jump the, the firewall here and um, also to communicate um, using um, apps such as Telegram. So. This is kind of a, a, a more technological way in which the, the security here is trying to get a little bit ahead of the, um, the protesters and any potential protests that could do happen we in know, the coming days. Do we know, Eunice, what the size of the protest crowds are, measured in the hundreds, measured in the thousands, or what? It's difficult to say, but just based on the number of videos that have been emerging from all the various cities across the the country, it's uh, probably in the thousands or so, Um, definitely in the hundreds. Uh, We've seen um, hundreds just in, um, you know, one city versus another. And um, but it's again, it's very difficult to say. And also because there are so many videos and some of them um, because of that there, it's difficult to verify all of these various videos. But definitely there is. Um, some uh, various uh, locations that are very frustrated with these COVID controls. And to your point, the fact that in China, which is so much of a surveillance state, the the fact that people would be doing this, it really sort of speaks to them essentially risking their lives. Um, Pippa, I want to get your thoughts on the commodity impact here in what is shaping up to be a very busy week or two weeks because obviously we have uh, the weakness, or we did have that weakness earlier today in crude prices because of the China headlines. Um, But then you've got OPEC, you've got sanctions, more sanctions kicking in in Europe as well. I could go on down the list over the next week and a half. Uh, Expectations about what all of this is going to mean for these conversations uh, about the supply-demand equation. I think the most common expectation here is that we just really don't know at this point because, as you mentioned, there are so many moving parts. And the Chinese demand story has been one that's been impacting oil for the past several weeks. 
Both WTI and Brent are coming off a third straight week of losses. But looking forward, we have that price cap coming up, potential price cap. We have the EU embargo on Russian oil, as well as the OPEC meeting on Sunday. And there are these reports that OPEC might, might, uh, might be prompted to implement another production cut based on how much oil has fallen in recent weeks and months. But then looking forward, I think once these sanctions are implemented and once countries do start moving away from Russia, it's really hard to reverse those. And so kind of what people are now talking about is a new reordering of the global energy system, including even just Russia cutting off nat gas to Europe. They had been such a key supplier for so many years. And so right now there are all these moving parts that are getting sorted out potentially that could reshape things. But it's certainly a pivotal couple of weeks here for the commodities market. All right, Pippa, thank you very much. And team, thank you as well. Eunice, Steve, we appreciate it. Uh, so what do you do if you're a U.S. company with operations in China or investors who have a lot of exposure to China? Let's ask Dennis Unkovic, partner at Meyer Unkovic and Scott, and a longtime uh, visitor to China as well as a uh, deal maker over there. Dennis, welcome. Good to have you with us. I, I Tyler guess, and Morgan, thanks for having me on. Again. I thanks. guess what leaps out to me is it's not easy being supreme leader, especially when supreme leaders' policies aren't working very well. This is probably the worst day for Xi Jinping since he became head of China in 2012, and it looks like it's going to get worse. And, and you would describe this, what, as second only to Tiananmen Square in terms of the threat uh, and, the, and the visibility of the protests that we're seeing? There have been no threats to the Chinese leadership since Tiananmen Square in 1989. And this is the first time, I think, in multiple cities in China you've seen, and I don't know how many people are on there, your reporter just was talking about that, but there's major dissatisfaction of the Chinese people with the government. And we haven't really seen that in more than 30 years. So let's talk about, let's talk to boards of U.S. companies that may have operations or be dependent on, on supply from China. Uh, it's you know, it seems like the, the cup of coffee is mostly drunk over there. Uh, it's late to be making changes, but companies can't be as dependent on China as they have been. Isn't that obvious? Tyler, if CEOs and board of directors needed a wake up call, this is it. Now, a lot of them have been saying, well, things are going to be getting better. The elephant in the room here is the rela relationship between China and the U.S. on a political basis. And if that continues to get worse, the opportunity for reliable sources of supply and commodities and products, you talked about iPhones a few minutes ago, is really going to drop. That's why I think you're going to see boards, hopefully, if not for the first time, in their next board meeting, sit down with the CEOs and say, where are we? How committed are we to China? Should we diversify? And if they're sole sourcing out of China, I think they're late to the party, but it's time to do it. So how quickly can it be done? If you're an Apple, for example, we're just having this conversation where maybe you are starting to see some diversification in the supply chain, but not, not necessarily in a meaningful or major way in the near term. How quickly can you actually pivot and make those, make those moves happen? Morgan, when I was on your show a couple of months ago, we talked about Apple. It started to look at China. About 5% of Apple's phones are now produced in India. I think you're probably going to see that raised to 30 or 40 percent. But as you pointed out, nothing happens immediately. It takes time to get it done. That's why I think boards have to give this a really top priority, because in the past, companies said, well, I don't know about the financial problems. But now there's not just a financial problem. There's a reputational problem. 
How does Apple look going into Christmas or the holidays in a couple of months from now saying, we're not going to have enough phones for you? These are the kind of pressures that I think board of directors have to put on the CEOs and the C-suite level people to say, what are you doing? The flip side of this is you have companies that manufacture in China who may be looking to diversify, but you have many companies, many international companies, many American companies that are looking to sell in China and into China as well. So how do companies walk that line uh, and continue to appease, continue to drive sales and continue to appease their investors, but also potentially appease the leadership of a country that uh, is going into even fuller crackdown right now? I think Xi Jinping has told you what China's future is going to be. He's not going to double down. He's going to triple down now on the, the COVID-19 uh, problem that your, your reporters were talking about a few minutes ago. So ultimately, I think companies are going to have to make a balancing judgment. Obviously, the, if the Chinese market is the only market you have, then you probably have to go along with this. But as the global market is changing, and you've seen what's happened to the supply chain really over the last three to four years, I think it's time that tough decisions are going to have to be made. And that's why the CEO and boards are there. And I think it's time to stop putting their head in the sand and say, how am I going to make these decisions? Let's say I'm an American investor and I am tempted to put money to work in a mutual fund or, or an ETF that, that has significant China holdings. What would you tell that person? I would tell them to be very careful. If you've seen what's happened to the Chinese market overall over the last year and a half, when these pressures have grown, there has been pressure downward on the value of those investments. So I'm not saying don't do business in China. I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying the risks are higher there than I think most of the analysts and the CEOs have put on it in the past. Dennis, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Dennis Ankovic, thanks. Coming up, value hunting. There are two companies with improving balance sheets that a longtime investor says are worth owning. He's going to name them for us next. Plus, the former Toys R Us CEO says he's not buying into the hype around the record start to the holiday shopping season. We're going to ask him why he's expecting overall sales to disappoint. And as we head to break, some names hitting all-time highs today. Ulta, General Mills, and Burke. Welcome back to Power Lunch with stocks near session lows. Our next guest says the market is not completely discounting earnings estimate cuts and says multiples could compress further from here. Let's go value hunting with Sarat Sethi, managing partner and portfolio manager at DCLA. He's also a CNBC contributor. Sarat, great to see you today. Uh, before I get into your specific names, though, I do want to get your take on the weakness that we're seeing here to start the week uh, in the equity markets. Is this all just a result of everything that we're seeing on the geopolitical front and these protests uh, that are happening in China right now, or is there more, or is there more happening? More, is there more to consider? I think it's a combination. I mean, definitely what we saw overseas in China is adding to this uncertainty. What does it mean for demand? What does it mean for um, even if we're talking about frictional costs in the supply chain? But I think overall, the market is now looking ahead to next year and saying where are earnings going to be on the S&P and where are earnings going to be in specific sectors. And I think that's where, as investors, we need to be a little bit careful because if you start extrapolating where earnings are going to be, and we really haven't seen earnings come down meaningfully, most of the uh, return this year, especially in the EPS of the S&P, has been energy. 
So right now we're going to see that. And, and it really going forward, kind of where is that growth going to be? And until that's answered, I think you're going to see volatility in the market and, and sell-offs, and especially in some of these sectors that have high PEs. Okay, so if we dig down and we go value hunting, where would some of that growth be? So the way I want to frame it is to look at companies that will not be affected that much by a potential decline in the overall market or in an earnings uh, basis. So look at companies that have a margin of safety and whose earnings aren't really that, quote, inflated or high PEs. So, for example, look at Glaxo. Glaxo trades at 10 times earnings. A lot of bad news baked into the stock already. If you look at kind of the Zantac litigation, you look at they've already spun off Halion, they've got a pristine balance sheet. And the reason we also like it is, look, you're going to have earnings growth of about 10% for the next couple of years, 5% revenue growth. And if you look at their pipeline, what's really important is as we've gone through COVID, really uh, people have not gone out and gotten new vaccines. And the pipeline for uh, Glaxo, a lot of it is focused on vaccines like the shingles vaccine and a couple others. So if you look at this at macro level, it's not going to be affected that much, no matter really what goes on in the world. And they have their own uncorrelated earnings that are going to increase over time. So let's move on to another another one, which I think is uh, uh, XPO Logistics. Right. So XPO is kind of a special situation, Tyler. They just spun out RxO and GXO. I know it's all similar acronyms, but this is less than truckload. This company helps their customers put goods on trucks that don't necessarily have to be full. So in a slowing economy, you want companies like them that are not asset heavy. They're going to be able to help their customers put goods in other companies. The company is two times levered, which is not a lot. They're selling the European business. Again, if you look at their earnings projections, only trading at about 11 times earnings, but historically, most of the LTLs trade at a much higher level. So already discounting a lower earnings, we think there's a lot of positive here with this company truly focused on the LTL model, which actually can be successful in a slowing kind of supply chain customers really focused on costs. So two value stocks trading below market multiples that have already discounted a lot of earnings slowdown and can have potential upside in a market that we think is not really going to go that that far given where we see EPS and the S&P. But when you're talking about transports, when you're talking about freight in general, I mean, is a name like this, XPO, is that going to be recession-proof? It's not, but that's why I kind of I like what they do with the LTL piece of it. Hmm. The LTL piece of it gives them the ability, you don't have to buy the whole truck. You can buy pieces of it and you can ship it. And they don't own the truck, and that's the best part of the business. So they make money based on the percentage of what they sell. So again, you're reducing your overhead, you're reducing your capital costs, and you're also using a business that can help other customers cut costs, and yet they can do well in this environment. Sarat Sethi, great to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Alrighty, further ahead, more than just a support wall, we're going to take a look at one startup that is making energy efficient and fire resistant wall material. Plus, game over for Microsoft's deal to buy Activision? Well, growing reports that the FTC may block that merger. We will trade that news and some other big headlines in today's Three Stock Lunch. All right, welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Shares of Disney lower by about 3% right now. The company's new, old CEO, Bob Iger, holding a town meeting 
with employees, uh, of course, addressing why he came back, saying he loves the company, the people, the creativity, but also addressing some business matters. On Disney Plus, saying instead of chasing subscribers with aggressive marketing and aggressive spending on content, the company needs to start chasing profitability. Also on cost, saying the previously planned hiring freeze will remain in place. Iger shooting down rumors, by the way, that Apple would buy Disney and also saying don't expect Disney to do any buying of its own right now. It's interesting, too. It seems to really have stressed creativity. Uh, and it comes off of a weekend where Disney was not only the biggest winner, but also the biggest loser at the box office. Um, winner being the new Black Panther movie. Loser being this latest animated series, Strange Worlds, which uh, seems to have bombed. It's the worst three-day opening for a Disney animated feature since 2000. So kind of speaking to how important the talent piece the of the puzzle is part of it. at a company your, like Disney. Keep your creatives happy if you're in that business. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to Brian Sullivan for the CNBC News Update. Hi, Brian. Hey, Morgan. Thank you very much. All right. A guilty plea to all state charges today for the 19-year-old white gunman who killed 10 black people at a Buffalo supermarket in May. Peyton Gendron admitted the murders were racially motivated. He will spend the rest of his life in prison, no chance of parole, and he also still faces federal charges. Take a look at this from Maryland. Two people miraculously rescued from a small plane that crashed into high voltage electricity lines about 100 feet above the ground. It took seven hours as workers carefully extricated these folks to make sure the plane also did not fall to the ground. They were rescued safely. And the World Health Organization has a new name for monkeypox, which has been widely criticized for being stigmatizing. It will now simply be known as M. Pops. Back to you. Okay. Uh, Brian Sullivan, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Ahead on Power Lunch, a record-setting Black Friday online sales topping $9 billion with consumers buying big-ticket items. But despite that number, our next guest isn't impressed with the consumer turnout this year. Plus, more Bitcoin businesses going bust. Another major lender, BlockFi, declaring bankruptcy today. We've got those details when Power Lunch returns. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Right now, stocks are at session lows. This is largely driven by COVID concerns out of China. Those China worries sending oil to the lowest level in nearly a year earlier in the session as well. But oil turning around midday on suspicions. OPEC could respond to falling prices with a production cut. So I just want to give you some rundown of some of the numbers here. As we just mentioned, it was a volatile session for oil. That finished the day up 1%. The 10-year note, uh, 3.698% is the level there. And as I said, equities are at session lows right now. Uh, really, every S&P sector is lower. Energy, tech, uh, materials, some of the names leading the charge there. Tyler, I'll send it over to you. All right, thank you very much. And let's talk retail, shall we? Consumers spent a record $9.1 billion online shopping uh, during Black Friday. This according to Adobe Analytics. Uh, overall, online sales were up 2.3% year over year with electronics and toys the big winner. In-person shopping also up 2.9% according to these numbers. But our next guest says this was a disappointing start to the holidays for most retailers. Gerald Storch is the CEO of Storch Advisors and former Toys R Us chairman and CEO. Jerry, welcome. Good to have you with us. Couple of questions. Number one, those 2.3% online spending gains and 2.9% that we just referenced there, are those inflation adjusted or are those just moved up because things cost more? 
No, they're not inflation adjusted. And these sales are record setting only in the sense that they're $1 higher than they were last year. But they're below the trend of retail sales for the last three months and certainly below the trend in online sales. Look, online sales have been, have been up in double digits the last couple of months, like 12% last month. And total retail has been up 8%. You know, when you look at it year over year, the way these numbers are. So 2% is below trend. Yeah. You know, and, and for, for the internet to be up only 2% when inflation is 6 to 8%, the, whole, the, whole, the, the record setting uh, narrative just doesn't hold up. And, we, and, by, and by the way, these sales are highly promotional. I doubt these companies are making a lot of money anyway. Let me talk to you about another narrative that seems uh, f- full of hocus pocus, and that is Black Friday and Cyber Monday. They feel so 2002 to me. I mean, the, the whole thing, I mean, it, it's just it, it meaningless. Look, it used to mean something, but now it's been so watered down. There was Black Friday in July. There were yeah. massive Black Friday events, Black Friday events going in every major retailer starting early October. So the sales have all been mushed around. No one knows where we really stand for the holiday season. You know, and when you get to uh, these Black Friday sales for this week, they started on Sunday. No one even ran special ads for Friday. That used to be one of the biggest ads of the year. So you run an ad running Sunday through Saturday and you say it's Black Friday week. You know, Walmart calls it deals for days. It's like days and days and days. You know, long ads like that. I'm so over the sales it. obviously get, get spread around. And then Cyber Monday, that used to have a reason too. You know, that was when the internet was small. And that was kind of a day you could order and make sure you got up by Christmas or something like that. I don't know what. It was years ago. Now it's just another excuse for a big sale on the, on the heels of uh, the Black Friday week. So, Jerry, the part I'm trying to suss out here is when you see these promotions and these sales happen earlier in the season, does that just pull forward the demand and the sales or does it actually create a situation where when things are marked down and marked down for so long, consumers actually go out and buy more over a longer period of time? Well, well, my decades of experience in retail say you can't generate a bigger market just by having the sales at a different time during the season. You might okay. be able to take share from your competitor by having your sale earlier, but you're not going to grow the market. I mean, Morgan, I love you. I'm not going to buy another Christmas present just because the sales started earlier. You know, same thing mm. for my kids. You know, it's just not going to happen. You still buy everybody one present. So it doesn't really change a thing when you start earlier or end or all that stuff. But people are trying to find any way to win. And what is a very, very difficult retail environment if you're selling electronics or clothing or, or home goods right now, you know, where all the, all the money's going is towards necessities, towards food, towards gasoline, people to pay for those first. And what's left over is what you get to spend on toys. Okay. So in light of that, what's winning, what's losing this season? Well, I think there are some very good retailers doing well. Like Walmart, Costco, Home Depot and Lowe's continue to thrive. People are spending money fixing up their homes, even if they're buying new homes. Dix is doing very well. I think it still has kind of a, you know, people are staying at home a lot more. You know, a lot of these schedules where you don't work five days a week, you know, you get time for athletics. So Dix is doing well. I think TJ Maxx is a perennial winner. I would always go with them. The restaurants were up huge over the weekend, by the way, clearly double digit gains in food service. So I'd go with any of the big restaurant brands. I think they're very well positioned, you know, for the future here. So I think there are a lot of big winners. Apple obviously would be a big winner if they get the supply of the product. Everybody wants an Apple phone. So that, they, they generally did very well with Apple gadgets, everything else for the weekend, but they're struggling with supply, as you know, and reported on all day. But if you say, if you say and, I, and I heard you say, uh, that the consumer is increasingly concerned with paying for the essentials. Now, some of those essentials they're buying at Walmart and Costco, groceries and the like. But uh, 
if if a consumer is really concerned about the essentials, those those incremental or impulse buys are just not going to be there. That that doesn't sound strong for the consumer. Uh, now, again, I don't want to be negative. I really believe in the consumer, but they're, they're starting to get leverage. They're spending more on credit cards. We've seen all this. The money's running out, you know, from, from the COVID times. And so we're just seeing a very different consumer as we head towards this holiday. So it's going to be so-so at best. I, I would be shy away from apparel companies, department stores, specialty apparel. I really worry about furniture companies, you know, the Williams-Sonoma of the world and restoration hardware. That was then. This is now. And people just simply aren't spending the money that way. Let's leave it on that note. Jerry Storch, thanks very much. We'll see you again, I'm sure, before the holiday season is over. Well, today's Clean Start is looking to solve the building industry's carbon issues right at the source during construction. That's next. Global warming is rapidly changing the way we build homes, a process that really hadn't evolved much over the years until now. Diana Olick is looking at some of the new technology in her continuing series on climate startups. Hi, Diana. Hey, Morgan. Yes, styles certainly change over the years, but materials really haven't. Mostly concrete, steel, and lumber, all of which contribute heavily to global warming. Now new products are moving in with new companies hoping to green this age-old industry. Homes and buildings account for 40% of global carbon emissions, much of that during construction. Building with lumber, steel, and cement is neither clean nor energy efficient. But replacing those materials is difficult because of outdated building codes. Now, innovation is finally taking shape from the ground up. The carbon footprint the Vantum has in our homes is about 80% lower carbon footprint than traditional construction. Vantum, a North Carolina-based startup, is one of several companies like RSG3D and Nexi experimenting with new wall materials. It invented a factory-made light panel consisting of fire and weatherproof ceramic-like faces and insulation made of a proprietary material. The company's CEO says the panels are less expensive, take a quarter of the time to build, and are five times more thermally efficient. What we deliver to the job site are complete uh, uh, homes uh, that have everything in them, the electrical, the bathroom, with a very, very efficient thermal envelope, which is what allows us to hit net zero at low cost. The modular homes or buildings are trucked to the site and put in place like Lego pieces. Caliber Companies, a client, says it reduces construction costs by 15% compared with stick-built homes, as well as consumers' costs. The structure is actually more structurally sound and a site built. Um, the thermal envelope of these is second to none, so you're going to have less electricity cost to heat or cool your home. Phantom's backers are Breakthrough Energy, Quadrant, and Tem Capital. Total funding so far, $25 million. Now, the company plans to build 15 U.S. factories over the next seven years, each capable of producing a million square feet of homes each year. Morgan? Wow, that's uh, they're moving quickly. I'm just curious about this, though, Diana, because we've seen technologies advance over the decades dramatically in so many other industries. And yet we're just having this conversation now in real estate. Why has it taken so long for real estate to adapt? Yeah, it's funny, Morgan. I walk around a lot of construction sites and you'll still see people using clipboards and Excel spreadsheets instead of tablets. They really just haven't. And when you ask them, they say it has to do with the lack of skilled labor, lack of training and workers' inherent adversity to new technology. And an interesting stat, just 60 percent of construction firms say they do not have a dedicated R&D budget, which to me is just amazing.
All right, Diana, Diana Olick, thanks very much. We've got three key headlines and three analyst calls. Today's three-stock lunch, diving into Macau, video games, and chicken prices. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Today's three-stock lunch looks at three headlines and three calls. First, chicken. The headline, a drop in chicken prices is prompting Wingstop and Popeyes to expand their offerings. The call, Barclays downgrading Tyson to underweight, citing feed costs and inflation. Second, casino stocks. Macau casino names rising on license renewals. The call, J.P. Morgan upgrading Wynn Resorts to buy on a Macau recovery. And third, there are growing concerns the FTC will move to block Microsoft's takeover of Activision Blizzard. The call, Wells Fargo and Morgan Stanley upgrading Activision to a buy, calling it an opportunity for investors. So let's bring in CNBC contributor Boris Schlossberg, Managing Director of FX Strategy at BK Asset Management. Boris, great to see you. First up, the trade on Tyson. Your thoughts? So Tyson, Tyson actually getting hurt more on beef rather than chicken. The problem is that um, many investors feel that consumers are really tightening their budgets and moving down from beef. Uh, since 36% of Tyson's revenues comes from beef, that's where they're getting hurt. But I think at this point, the stock is really beaten up, and it's almost like throwing baby out of the bathwater. Unless you think there's something inherently wrong with Tyson, which is one of the preeminent food producers in the world, I really like it here um, on a longer-term basis, although the stock can certainly just basically wallow at these prices for quite a while. So I think you know if you want to be an investor, you probably want to be a little bit tactical. One idea, possibly, you can sell uh, 60 puts, which will give you a 57 basis uh, in the stock all the way till April of 2023. 20, uh, um, and that actually gives you at a very, very good price at about a 3.3% dividend. And you can just simply wait until the macro picture improves. But generally, I think the stock has gotten so badly beaten up at this point that, um, you know, uh, it's, it's more of a buy than it is a sell. Let's talk uh, about Wynn Resorts. Is, is a renewal of, of gambling licenses in Macau enough to power the stock as it is today? This is really, I think, a value play, right? I mean, there's lots and lots of parties that seem to be very interested in when purely from a value proposition. As you said, of course, yes, there's only six Macau licenses, and Wynn gets one of them, incredibly valuable uh, asset. Um, given the fact that Macau is actually five times as large as, as Las Vegas in terms of, I think, betting at this point. However, there's just an enormous amount of risk also because, you know, zero COVID. Everybody's been hoping Macau comes back, but um, that may be put off for quite a while. On the other hand, there are a lot of parties, including the Houston Rockets owner, um, Thilma Fertitta, and there's rumors that LVS is interested in the, in the property. Bottom line is some analysts think there's about $95 value in win. It's trading at 73. So I think it's probably a very interesting value play at this point, given going forward. Okay, final name, Activision Blizzard. Well, I've been bullish Activision many times on the show. I love the stock. I think, you know, I think the whole gaming industry is actually very, very strong. Now, the story with Activision, of course, is there's this, this fear now that the Microsoft deal does not get done. But I think there's a bigger story here that even if it doesn't get done, Activision in and of itself is a really great play this year. First of all, if the deal doesn't get done, they get a $3 billion a breakup fee. So that just simply adds to their cash flow. Um, secondly, they have two very big, um, uh, you know, call, call to Duty coming out in, in, in 23, and I, and I think um, Overwatch, right, too. So both those titles are 
just expect to be huge at the box office um, at this point. And of course, you know, the box office in gaming is much bigger than box office in Hollywood. So I think you just have to be secularly bullish this stock from every angle. If the deal with Microsoft gets done, it's going to be a cherry on the um, uh, on the icing, uh, icing on whatever. I forgot the expression, you know, icing on the cherry on the icing uh, uh, on top. But bottom line is, I think Activision in and of itself, aside from the Microsoft deal done or not, is a great stock going forward. Okay. And finally, Boris, I, I just want to get your take on stocks in general right now, uh, starting this week lower. We're poised for gains for the month, though. Uh, given all the geopolitical and macro headlines that have been moving things uh, here in recent weeks, your take? You feel me biting my tongue at this point. It's very, really hard to be confident one way or the other. Yes. I've been relatively bullish. I thought, you know, I thought the inflation story has done and I thought we would get a, you know, a lot of support. But of course, you know, the geopolitical risks are just, I think, the greatest unknown, both in Russia and in China. And that is one thing that's just impossible to predict. I think overall, if, if, if things kind of calm down themselves down geopolitically, we're in very, very good shape for stocks to rally. But that is the big unknown. That's why the risk factor in the stock market still remains. Okay. Boris Schlossberg, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. All right, still to come, uh, the latest victim of the crypto collapse allowing, following excuse me, FTX's scandal. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. The price of Bitcoin right now sitting just above 16000 as we're learning about another crypto casualty. Today, BlockFi filing for bankruptcy protection. And Kate Rooney joins us now from San Francisco with more details. Kate. Hey there, Tyler. Yeah, this is the latest collateral damage we're seeing from FTX's downfall. The crypto lender BlockFi filing for Chapter 11 protection this morning in New Jersey. And BlockFi was one of a handful of firms that was supposed to be bailed out by FTX, which, of course, is now going through its own high-profile bankruptcy. We did just get some more bankruptcy paperwork where BlockFi says it was faced with what it called a severe liquidity crunch due to the unprecedented expedited collapse of FTX, they go on to say that FTX's apparent rescue, which began in the summer of 2022, stabilized BlockFi, but they say that was short-lived and over the past few weeks, exposure to FTX exacerbated rather than cured BlockFi's ailments. It also says that BlockFi has substantial exposure to FTX and the Chapter 11 process, they say, will allow BlockFi to run an orderly process and to maximize value they say they can deliver to clients at this point. The trouble for BlockFi started back in early summer. If you remember that implosion of the hedge fund, Three Arrows Capital, FTX had first swooped in with about $250 million in the form of credit, the line of credit back in June. That increased to $400 million in July when FTX had also agreed to buy the company or it had the option to buy the company. As FTX went under just a couple weeks ago, BlockFi once again had to halt customer withdrawals. And in the filing, BlockFi does say, it's got more than 100,000 creditors, and then liabilities and assets stand between $1 billion and $10 billion, guys. Back to you. So how does this get all unwound? I mean, these customers, are they ever going to be made whole? That is the big question, Tyler. And one recent analogy, really the only other high-profile crypto bankruptcy to look to is Mt. Gox, which uh, customers just now, about eight years after that company went bankrupt, are getting some of their money back. So with that expectation, and that really is the one historical analogy that people look to, there's not a lot of hope that if they do get their money, it will be anytime soon or that it will be an expedited process. But I was looking through 
again, this uh, bankruptcy paperwork that just came out within the last hour. And they do say that they are in a better position than, than FTX. While the crypto economy has really collapsed in the past few weeks and months, they say they, it, there's still value in this company. So the thought is, if that is the case, maybe there's a buyer and maybe that helps mm-hmm. make customers whole. But there's not a whole lot of confidence out there. Kate, quickly, I mean, between one and 10 billion, then you look at liabilities and and everything else at FTX. We're talking about tens and tens of billions of dollars here. Who are the customers for these companies? So the customers for BlockFi and for FTX, for that matter, tend to be, in a lot of cases, high net worth individuals who are looking for yield on their crypto. So BlockFi was a lender. It was offering 10 to 20 percent cash back, essentially a yield or what looked a lot like an APY. So they had some high net worth customers, but also just some average Americans who were looking to get more return on their money when interest rates at the time were at historic lows. So that's on the BlockFi side. FTX catered more to hedge funds and high power traders, but they're all also retail traders out there. So a lot of exposure uh, to all kinds of investors. All right, Kate, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Thank you very much for watching Powerline. Closing bell starts right now.